32 counties united by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United Ireland. Ireland. Every week in United Ireland, we go backstage and under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines. We bring you smart people who know what they're talking about without a lot of people shouting at each other in the studio. This week's question, what do Burmese people in Ireland think and know about what's happening right now in Myanmar? But before we get on to that, my favourite line of the whole podcast, this podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated from Patreon. Please put some petrol in our tank over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. In a non-jokey way, it really does help uh, to have your support. And I like it may just seem like, oh, sure, I won't bother signing up for three euro. What difference will that make? It makes all the difference. And that is three euro, not a week, not a day, three euro a month. And uh, yeah, we'd greatly appreciate it. But first, it's the state of the nation. Everybody's kind of um, in a very particular energy this last week. Uh, I've, I'm only noticing this from the type of end of tetherness that's going on on the internet. Really, fights, arguments, in fights, in fights, in fights, and in fights. And I don't know if everybody else is feeling the kind of like I am just over everything there's lots of really dark shitty news um but there's also good vaccine news johnson and johnson um you know got their vaccine approved by the ema i love when things work out for the little guy you know but anyway it's a one shot and you can put it in a fridge so that sounds very good we're gonna get six hundred thousand of those in may yeah april may yeah um Stephen Donnelly high-fiving himself on that one. But I think that obviously there is a very particular psych, psych point in the cycle that we're in right now, which is the year anniversary of lockdown and the first um, deaths that started to occur in Ireland. And it can feel very claustrophobic and tense to be dumped outside dumped out of that other end of the cycle, but kind of in a similar place. So if you are feeling on edge, it's normal. And maybe feel that normalness off the internet. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, the State of the Nation this week uh, on Clareburn on Thursday, Sarah Grace, who's a woman I interviewed about her experience of aggravated sexual assault, really violent, horrific attack that occurred uh, while she was sleeping. Uh, when a when a complete stranger broke into her apartment in Grand Canal Dock, um, the she didn't interview in Clareburn was really good. I had a piece in the Irish Times, and I think it kind of fed in in some way to this broader conversation that is now reemerging again, um, particularly in the UK with regards to the police officer being arrested on suspicion of murder and the disappearance of Sarah Everard, uh, and and just this this terror and helplessness and uh, worn out feeling that um, so many women have about the violence they experience, the potential of violence, the threat of violence uh, and all of that. And I'm kind of worn out by those conversations. I mean, I, I, I like they're so important, obviously, and they're very real. I wonder at what point 
men are going to start discussing more broadly their experiences um, of violence, sexual, physical or otherwise at the hands of men. Because I think what has shown over like repeated decades and we're going to be talking about International Women's Day as well and the repetition of that, like, you know, women have just been talking about this for so long and it, and it just doesn't seem to change that much. Like I think the conversation evolves, but the reality doesn't necessarily evolve. And um, maybe when that common ground is bridged where men also open up about the fact that they too um, are and can be very often victims of sexual and physical violence against men and that, I don't know, you know, from being, from suffering from abuse as a child or being having the shit kicked out of them as adults or whatever, like, I don't know what that's like and I would like to hear those stories from men as well. Maybe that common ground might yield some kind of progression instead of these really tragic, awful cases and stories that instigate this conversation that feels like I've been having it my whole life. There, I have seen uh, there is research going on about male violence. Um, Davina Devine was sharing it on her story. I don't have further information, but I do think there is moves starting to come of male uh of, pe- of people reaching out to males to share their stories for sure. Mm. Cathy Sheridan had a very good piece about Liveline on Monday um, and about the kind of horrible abuse that, that some men were facing. So that seems like, like we all need to progress this together. Like, and, and the only way really to progress to affect change is when you find that common ground and people think that an issue that doesn't impact them, they realise that it does. And that's, the move forward, um, I think. But yeah, on International Women's Day, how did you feel about about uh, that little thing in the calendar coming up again? I've kind of stopped paying attention to it in recent years because it's just become so um, corporate and feminist washing kind of. I was struggling with it in the lead up to it as my many voice notes to you, looking for like, not redemption, looking for like, to be absolved of my feelings because it felt like I shouldn't be feeling like this because, you know, obviously having a day for International Women's Day is good, but it just felt very like exclusive to a certain type of woman. And the way that it's celebrated is very academic and it's all panels and I don't know what else you can do. Well, I I do know what else you can do. You can do other things. It doesn't have to be, um, and I'm not against panels, I suppose. And the conversations that are happening are good to be happening. And I kind of kept breaking it down and going, okay, well, we need more women to be on panels in general. So if they're, if International Women's Day is going to start people who may not ever be on panels being on panels and they'll be included in bigger panels. But it just all feels very one type of woman that's being conversed about. And where's the layers of the different type of women and where's the inclusivity? And I don't, I obviously I mean in terms of minorities being included, but like if you're not uh, like, like I suppose it feels like when we celebrate women, in whatever features or whatever it's women who are doing these extraordinary things and like that even if you aren't doing extraordinary things you're worthy and and should be celebrated and are part of international women's day and what is the point of women's day is it just to say oh these people are doing great things or is it like looking at where we're falling down and how we improve i just think i just it feels like 
what's the point? I, I think there's just only so many times I can listen to, you know, things about like gender pay gap and inclusion and a lot of the stuff around International Women's Day from my perspective has evolved in a very corporate kind of neoliberal way that it's people celebrating or demanding access to systems that we sh- I'm not convinced we should be like you know like upholding you know so it's it's like lean you know, in, Luna. Lean in. but it's like you know we need more women in Finnegale you know it's like well that's not really the or like we need you know more women on boards or blah 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 it's like should we not be trying to dismantle all this stuff now I mean it there's there's always been a court uh you know obviously companies love and big corporations love nothing more than being able to like wash their like dirty, dirty faces with, you know, uh, superficial issue dressing. And I think that that's been such a feature of, of International Women's Day, certainly in Ireland over the last few years. And like, you know, people are obviously everything's online this year, but even before, you know, people are not going to achieve you know, a, re- a gender revolution by like going to some big tech's coffee morning or some shit like that. So I think that that's, it feels very like, it feels very just white and, you know, wealthy and it, it doesn't feel radical to me. So, but I think at the same time we can say all that, but at the same time, there are conversations that are like, still worth having for people who aren't as radical as you let's say like people who are on their journey who I'm who, not particularly radical though yeah, you know I'm like not, I'm not saying you're radical I'm saying you're probably further along in the discovery of I would I need to be more radical like that my constant my thing every day is to like take away all of the things that I've accumulated and 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 push more and I understand that you're saying like certain people are not are, are kind of stuck in second wave feminism where they're, they're just like at a particular point and like, that's fine. But you know, I'm not, I'm not going to hashtag all over the place. Oh, um, I know. But like, I just think like, let's say the gender pay gap is still there. So yeah, it's worth like not letting it just not have that conversation because like it's still worth having the conversation. It's but, also yeah. What are we going to do then? What's the action? Yeah. Well, and also like, why don't we get rid of money? Why don't we get rid of wealth? You know, like that would be my gender pay gap conversation. Okay, I appreciate what you're saying. I, I'm not radical. Why don't we get rid of money? Okay, That's not yeah. a radical thing. That's just like a really sm- sensible thing to do. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was listening to the radio this morning on Thursday and I think it was Jack Corgan Jones was on uh, from the Times and also Naomi O'Leary's piece in the Times today about like the vaccines and stuff and this FOMO that we have from, oh no, it was like a doctor or someone from the North was on and he was like, yeah, we're just like poodling along here and we're going to do the over 50s and la la and you're like, mm, we don't have what none of that. Us? What about <laughs> us? So there's big vaccine FOMO going on and I think especially with the UK, as I said before, the minute all these lovely people <laughs> that we know in like London and Manchester and Glasgow and Belfast and everywhere are like, woohoo, we're like, you know, in a beer garden and we're still <laughs> making fucking banana bread, whatever it is. I think that's going to be hard. But as we say, the J&J. What's the solution? 
to I, what's the solution well what's the solution to those feelings because like i was like even conversations in my whatsapp group i'm like there's going to be an uprising like when this comes so much closer to home i mean i don't know what the solution is i'm i've become pretty great at like harboring large uh you know, mountains of resentment, you know, across all types of, of facets of my life. And I just feel like this is more. Throw it on the heap. <laughs> That's optimistic. Uh, did you love, did you love Patrick Frayne's piece on Meghan and uh, Harry? I did. And it was really good because it meant I didn't have to watch it. No, maybe, I don't know why I haven't watched it yet. I was busier flat out in my lockdown. Uh, didn't get around to it, but yeah, it was so good. And Get, it's going global. Go on, Patrick. Yeah, it's a fantastic piece. Um, the clown lead uh, was really great. And yeah, so Emily Nussbaum, the uh, TV critic from The New Yorker, tweeting it there. So that's pretty cool. Patrick's such a great writer. And you can listen to our byline episode with Patrick Frayne in the United Ireland Archive. Um, Davy Stockbrokers. <laughs> <laughs> I actually renewed my... Um, lapsed I don't know how it lapsed my currency uh, the currency subscription uh, that I had and I just renewed it prime not just on on the back of this story although the story is fantastic but this story and the work Tom Lyons and all the guys have done and girls on um women uh, uh, no, no, no 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 yes women um have done on this story uh m- prompted me to renew my currency subscription. So if you have spare cash and have finished supporting us on Patreon, support the currency uh, because they've done great reporting on this. Uh, but it's truly wild. Like I find it hard to engage. I'm like, oh, more absolute like weaponry from moneyed, suity crash types. That's I how I feel. I can't get over it's taken so long to come like to light and I know it's been worked on for so long I don't really understand like not that I don't understand what's happened I kind of have stayed away from what's happening and I I kind of read the headlines on the currency and then I'm like that's enough for me now I don't want to go in there because I'll just get into a rage so la 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 that mistake (laughs) that's a good approach also what else is going on in state of the nation oh my god big news this week the Sosu and Kelly palette dramas uh, I just put that in because there was a tweet that was like uh, <laughs> the silence from Michal Martin and the Sosu Kelly palette drama is deafening. Okay, so I have no idea what this is about. So there's pa- makeup palettes, and for 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 people who think palettes are something you collect at Halloween, not they're makeup like eyeshadows. So basically, there's big money to be made in them, and you there's a lot of like talk around the white labeling of them, so that people buy them what and then they do like we put so much effort into this and a lot of work uh and basically they brand them up and sell them and there was a partnership between uh so sumi and kelly who's a makeup artist and kelly's uh thing ran out contract ran out of her partnership and so sue rebranded the palette just to be her without Kelly and just put the same thing out and start selling it. And then, but Kelly didn't know about it and there was uproar. And I I think it's a really interesting uh, thing to talk about because of the questions it raises about the whole, uh, the white labeling and the selling things for the sake of things and all that kind of stuff. I find it really fascinating and Mm. the huge uh, market there is for it. Like, 
all the grey McMansions that are being bought f- flat out with them is uh, is down to these pallets. Um, so, yeah, interesting. I've just written launch United Ireland podcast pallet on a little note here. So right up our street. <laughs> stay tuned. This week marks one year, uh, as we were saying, since the first person um, died from COVID-19 in Ireland. Uh, next week, we are going to be reflecting on that year. Um, the bad, the good, the change. Uh, so stay tuned for that episode. And finally, in State of the Nation, Andrea, an optimistic note. Catherine Moran became Ireland's first consultant neurosurgeon in Belmont. Um, and I love that story because as a big fan of Grey's Anatomy, obviously pop culture and Me too. Uh, everything and after I decided I want to be a psychologist after watching Prince of Tides then I wanted to be in PR after watching uh, Ad Fab that worked I got into that then after watching Grey's Anatomy I did want to get a, a, oh CSI obviously I want to be a crime scene investigator signed mm-hmm. up for a diploma in that and then I wanted to be a neurosurgeon but then I spoke to a neurosurgeon and they were telling me like that sometimes you could be standing in one place just doing minuscule movements with your hands for maybe eight hours and you don't get to go to the toilet. I was like, I don't think that's for me. Apart from, you know, the 20 years that uh, Catherine Moran has been studying to get this. But it's great to see uh, she was not the first consultant neurosurgeon. Obviously, she's the first woman consultant neurosurgeon. And I am here for that. Well, that's an International Women's Day achievement I can stand over. And now we're getting to our main bit. It's a situation in Myanmar. You will have heard Andrea raise the situation in Myanmar multiple times in this podcast. Uh, it's a story, the military coup and subsequent violence against protesters. It seems to be flying under the radar in a lot of uh, European press. We've decided to discuss this further, uh, given the importance of the situation, despite the fact that it feels very far away from Ireland right now. Um, Most recently, the UN has condemned the military's violence against protesters who are being shot dead in the street. Absolutely horrific. Around 60 people have been killed since the military ousted Aung San Suu's government on February 1st this year. Uh, She was once kind of seen as a, you know, the icon of democracy and receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in the 90s and a key player in bringing about that kind of transition of short of sorts from like military rule to partial democracy, but in recent years faced serious criticisms regarding Myanmar's inaction in response to the genocide of the Rohingya people in the country who are Muslim and indeed her defence of those allegations uh, of genocide. Yet on February first, she was arrested by the military in a coup uh, after they declared elections that the country had had last November as fraudulent. There's a lot of complicated things going on. I know this is a context that you're very interested in, Andrea. We wanted to bring the human experience to the fore. Um, There is, of course, Burmese community in Ireland. And today we're going to be speaking to people for whom this issue is very close to home, even if they're far from their original home. So Etu, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Etu and... uh... I came from Kaya State. I belong to a, an ethnic group from Kaya State. And I live in Kerry with my family. There's a real feeling at the moment um, that history is repeating itself in Myanmar. Does it feel like that to you? And how does it look like to you from your perspective what's going on at the moment? Well, it is very worrying because, um, like you say, the history repeats itself. And uh, to give you a little bit... Um, 
about myself. I spent 12 years in the re refugee camp in Thailand. Uh, I became a refugee when I was 14 years old because um, back in 1988, there was an, an, a military coup where um, 3,000 students and people were killed in cities and uh, thousands were arrested around the country. And one year later, uh, after having crushed uh, the protesters and arrested uh, the people and then uh, killed a lot of people, and then they controlled the cities in Burma, and then they turned their attention to the ethnic areas when they started to launch military operation on the ethnic minority groups. So uh, there was when I became a refugee because I, I fled to Thai Burmese border and uh, we were not, I did not go straight into Thailand because Thai did not recognize us back then as refugees. So I was running around on the Bur Burmese border and the Thai Burmese border for two years in the war. And then literally, uh, I remember um, uh, clearly um, taking my meter exam under a tree because we had no schools. You know, we were on the run. So I, I took, um, I spent two years trying to get through one academy year of school, you know what I mean? And uh, I spent 12 years in refugee camp. So it is worries because um, during the two years in the running, in the hiding, I saw terrible things like uh, I saw a young woman was shot and her guts came out. That happened right in front of me, you know. And um, I saw a lot of men were arrested for forced labor because when they launched military operations, they used young men and men to carry their supplies and ammunition. And they use men um, as forced, uh, for forced laborers. And then they would burn the village in downs in the remote area. And back then we had no uh, phones, you know, forget about Facebook or any social media. And also rapes, you know, rapey women. To give you a more recent example, in 2011, the military raped two Kachin teachers, school teachers, and they were 21 and uh, 20 years old, and they were young, and they raped them, and then they killed them after that. At the international, it was in, in, on the international news, but they could not do anything. You know, so it is really worry time for, for the whole country, and then we think about the... Uh, the refugee way um, going into Thailand. In fact, as we are talking, I, I'm talking to you now. There are already two thousand refugee in on the Thai Burmese border, the Karen, because of the recent fighting between the military and the Karen forces. But if you have any particular question, then you can ask me. You know. Did you feel like you had no option but to leave? Like, what were the other options going to be for you at the time? If, if I had no um, option because I was a young boy and then growing up into a, you know an old a young man, so it was a worry time for me because I could easily uh, be arrested for uh, forced labor or force me to serve in the military, which I which I did not want to do. So I had no choice. So I, and then I ended up separated with my mother for 20 years because of that. Because my mother was stuck in, inside Burma and I was, I went to Thailand. So I was separated with my mom for 20 years uh, as a result. How frustrating is it to you now to try and get what's happening in Myanmar across 
uh, to people in Europe and in the European media. It is very frustrating because um, they have done this again and again, and yet there's little action uh, has been taken. So I, I feel very frustrated, and I wish the Italian, uh, the Irish, as a member of EU, can do more than talking. You know, they can we can pressurize the EU government to do their utmost to punish this um, military regime, so that they cannot do that again anymore. Because we are physically fed up with this military and this man with guns killing people in in the country. Do you have many family members um, in Myanmar at the moment? My sister, in fact, is in hiding because she's taking part in the uh, CDM, um, uh, Civil Disobedient Movement. She's a nurse. Uh, obviously, I cannot tell you where she is because she's, um, you know, the, she's in hideout, uh, in the hiding. So, and she's separated with her own husband and her son. So, I, you know, that's really worry for me. And she has been in the civil service for 33 years, and uh, she finally had enough. From afar, what is your read on, on, on what's happening? I mean, obviously, there was the, the discourse around the election, but clearly there has been some kind of, I know it took the rest of the world by surprise what has happened, but perhaps not so within the country itself. Like, what do you think is the catalyst that has got Myanmar to this point, as Andrea was saying, a kind of, uh, that feels like an echo from the past, again, re-emerging? I think uh, the main thing is their military interest, uh, business interest in the country. You know, they, the military got evolved in the uh, national um, business back in uh, 1962. You know, they have 100% of the uh, national budget uh, and then they have the whole, they, they take charge of the whole national resources, which mainly in the ethnic areas, like longings and uh, minerals, gas, oil, and fishing industry. They control all of this. So um, the military, uh, the reason the military want to take charge of Burma is partly because of the, their um, business interest in the country. And I'm sure Neve will um, collaborate more on that. We're going to go talk to Neve in, in, in one second, but Tinzar, can, you're in Kilkenny, right? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, and I am. Uh, I live in Kilkenny, yes. And I I came to Ireland in 2004. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, 2006, yeah. <laughs> uh, I came to Ireland in 2006. I, just, uh, I, I was born in Jiangong, which is the former capital city of uh, Myanmar. And so like, you know, what I can tell you about is like, I know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm so excited <laughs> at the moment here, because I just saw some videos and pictures of the people who just killed today. So, so that's why I'm a little bit, you know, I'm so emotional at the moment. Yeah. So I tell you again, my, That's okay. my That's name okay. is Tenza. Yeah, uh, my name is Tenza. I live in Kikani uh, with my husband and two children. And I came to Ireland in 2006. I'm not a politician, but, you know, I came from Ireland when I was 27. I followed to my husband. And uh, now, what I, I, you know, I'm so <coughs> sad and, and frustrated and I'm... Uh, are devastated, you know, seeing what happened in Myanmar. 
You've been doing a lot of work directly with the Myanmar people of Ireland to highlight what's happening. Um, what have you been asking of the Irish government uh, in in your letters? Yes, uh, we we uh, we sent two letters to the foreign uh, uh, foreign affairs uh, minister of the foreign affairs. You know, the first letter is about like we uh, we condemned the that military coup. Uh, as the the Myanmar people in Ireland, uh, we condemn the you know as our strongest cause. We reject the military coup, and uh, we ask we ask for help. Now, now at the moment, what happened is like in in uh, in Ireland, I don't I think people not know about what is happening in Myanmar. They may see you know they may see the 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 news about what is happening in Myanmar, but. They don't know how serious it is now at the moment. And so, uh, in the letter, uh, we we ask uh, Mr. Simon, uh, you know, uh, to uh, to you know, uh, to to. Oh my gosh! Sorry. It's okay. Don't worry about it at all because we can edit edit the piece. Don't worry about it at all. It's very understandable to be upset. This is a very very stressful time. What happened is I just saw the picture of the uh, the NLD NLD uh, the members. The uh, the military took them. They they detained them at night time, and then the next day they just uh, they just they just said like you know uh, to the family he's dead. He was. He he was fine. He was a healthy fine man, and then he came back as to the family as a dead person. And what they said was he he just ran away and he fall and you no, know, but he came back with his face is all you know bruised and his his uh, his tummy was you know it's opened. It was opened, and they said it he fall you know. So oh my god, that when I saw the picture. So I'm I'm uh, I'm really really sad to see that picture. And then at the moment in Burma, in Myanmar, uh, you know they are they are killing people as well. In Nyai is one of the the county, and now they they shoot the the the, the protester and his head like nearly like this whole head it it's it's opened. You can see the brain as well. I saw that picture just a while ago, and then you know that's. I feel like I cannot do anything for them. I think like, you're, uh, you're the, already the doing um, yeah. so much in terms of advocating. Yeah, we people are asking for help from the UN and also the international community, you know, to protest these violence, these gentle violence, and to protest the crime against the humanity. They are doing all the crimes against humanity at the moment. So we are asking help to UN and then all the international you know, community to help us. At the moment, uh, what I can tell is so far, the UN uh, and the other, the EU people, they do the statements, you know, and then uh, the statements after statements. And then they said they do, they, they would do some countries do the sanctions. Well, for me, I would say is they are not... It, it, they are not the affected affected help because the, the the military already spoken to Christine, who is the special envoy of UN Secretary General. They told he told her like they don't care the statements, they don't care the session sanctions, they don't care the isolation. It, and he said that he will go with only a few friends. 
it means I will say China and Russia are mainly helping the military. So I, I really, I, I'm begging, you know, the international community and the UN to help to save Myanmar and the people who are dying every day. At the moment, over 2,000 people are detained, and then over between 18 and 100 we, we, we die. There is not a day people are not dead, and the people are protesting peacefully. They are they have no arm. And the military, they are killing. It's not like they use the, uh, the rubber bullet to disperse the, uh, the, the protester. They use the live bullet. And they aimed to the head of the protesters. That's why people are dying. People are dead. There are loads of people killed under their inhuman, inhumanity. I would say they are they are beyond the humanity. That's very did, sad. Can I ask you, did Simon Coveney respond to any of the letters? Sorry, I think we have a bit she, of, of delay. Sorry there, yeah, Tinsar, but so, did, did Simon yeah, Coveney... Sorry, sorry. He did, yeah. He did. He replied our, our first letter, like, you know, saying like he is, he, he received it and, you know, he, 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 he understands, you know, and how... Uh, how we felt, you know, and and also we also thanks him, uh, like you know, to uh, to to supporting you know bombings, uh, uh, to supporting on our side, you know, uh, to seeing what is what is happening in you know to see what is happening in Myanmar. Sorry, Stinzar there. I'm going to bring in um, Neve Delacre here. Neve, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and why this issue is, is kind of relevant to your work? Um, maybe maybe just for clarification, it's it's not that it's directly anymore, but um, I guess I've spent the last 15 years uh, working with people from Myanmar. I guess um, 2004, I, I initially started volunteering um, doing volunteer work on the Thai Myanmar border um, in one of the camps close to where A2 actually. Um, so we, we were kind of passing ships when we pieced together our histories. Yes. Um, we, we, were, we were actually, um, we, we were in the same circles, if you like, uh, at one point back in 2004. Um, so um, so I, I was volunteering there for quite some time and then um, gradually started working with different NGOs in the in the space in the area um, and continued working, I guess, at a lo- from a local level to a, to a countrywide level to, to then working with the within the region, uh, working with ministers for the ASEAN area uh, region in particular. So, um, I just moved back to Ireland a year ago, um, so I'm no longer directly working on Myanmar-related issues. But obviously, after 15 years, um, we've, I've managed to accumulate some some very important and dear friends and colleagues. Um, so seeing what's happening, obviously, my my feed, my Facebook feed, is just dotted with images of people protesting throughout the country. Um, and yet, when I'm when I switch on my my national news here, there's there's very little. Um, being reported, uh, I certainly don't feel like it's getting the kind of coverage that it should be getting, given the severity of it. What are the implications for what's happening in Myanmar in terms of human rights and global relations? I suppose it's difficult not seeing it being covered, but how is what's the global um, effect of that? Like, how can who should be stepping in, and how can we stop it? 
you know, maybe maybe a step back. So I guess I guess for, for people who aren't familiar with Myanmar, I guess a very quick snapshot is it what's very interesting, a very rich and, and diverse country. But if you think about it as the, the central part of Myanmar being sort of made up of predominantly Burmese ethnic people. And then as you look at the periphery around that, um, you're looking at a neighboring with Bangladesh, India, China, Laos and Thailand. And each, I guess, from the centre towards each of those country boundaries are is where the ethnic groups are all set up. And those particular areas are mountainous, very rich in natural resources. Um, but obviously, there are areas where there's been ongoing civil war for considerable anything from the last 50 to, to 70 years um, in different ethnic areas and different levels of ceasefire agreements in place. Um, so very rich, obviously steeped steeped in in fantastic um, culture and resources. Um, but what this brings with it has been that this civil war that's been going on, which has created created internal displacement as well within Myanmar. Which is why there have been the number of NGOs working on the periphery, or in the last ten years, they've been able to work from inside Myanmar to bring the support and the services needed to those ethnic areas. They are, you know, for everything from health to, to education um, programs taking place. So I guess even before this particular coup, you were looking at nearly a million people internally displaced within Myanmar. Um, so what we're seeing now is along the border areas where they've been facilitating receiving refugees, there's been a real drying up of, of resources. So along the Thai-Myanmar border where A2 was, um, well, certainly it's been there for 30 years those refugee camps and what's happened is with emerging crises such as Syria and Yemen, there's been a, this rapid deterioration of funding available to keep those refugee camps going to, to really where they're reaching critical points um, where the question has to be asked, at what point are you doing more harm than good? Um, and this has all been in relation to what, what happens for refugees who second and even third generation refugees being born in refu inside refugee camps without ID and not being able to leave and not feeling like they can go back. So big efforts have been made in the last, I'd say, five years in particular for repatriation. Um, getting to a point where repatriation may seem like a possibility. It's happened on small scale, tokenism, small groups, pilot groups have gone back certainly in the last three years. And then a situation like this emerges. And when you see this, this taking place, I guess, I guess to speak to a two stories, really to see that is history is repeating itself. The, the word on, on the ground is that, you know, people are fleeing. They are going towards the, the border areas. Even just just before we came on this call, Al Jazeera was reporting from the border town where I was based out of for, for a large number of years um, with imagery of, you know, Thai soldiers getting ready with to receive um, refugees. So there's an awareness for neighboring countries that, an exodus is about to happen. There's reports already of people on the Indian border leaving the the, the military, um, leaving the Thai police. Um, so, you know, I guess there's there's a real worry that it's going to go back on itself um, and that human rights abuses are going to continue to take place. Um, I guess there isn't to speak to Tinzar's point. There, there is no fear within the military because of, of sanctions, because they have the support of countries like China. Um, so, you know, targeted sanctions, um, if they're just just on Myanmar in general, are actually really going to be affecting those who are already suffering 
and not the people and not actually being targeted at the military and the businesses that they own. Um, so I guess it, that that's what the real concern is. And I think the reason why this particular protest, set of protests are so important is the fact that people have come out every single day since the 1st of February, every single day peacefully. And what's remarkable is that in this particular protest, it's a really young generation that are coming out. They're really putting their, their lives on the line. Um, the, the stories coming out of young people dying on the front lines, you know, really doing their best to, to raise the issue, raise the profile the, the revolution within the revolution that's been done by women, women are taking to the front of the of the protests as well. I mean, it, it's really quite extraordinary, the momentum that it's gathering and the fact that people are not backing down. This is happening against a backdrop of, of cash shortages um, and people not being able to, I guess, a, a concern taking place right now at this stage around uh, food supply and potential increase in food prices. You know, normally this is the time of year when people start, when, when there's a certain amount of crops being cultivated. People are not having access to this because of the amount of, of cracking down being done by the military and the onslaught by the military right now. So there's a real concern that people will have to flee for economic reasons and for political reasons as well. Tinzara and I too, like what would be your message to politicians in Europe and and in Ireland and the Irish government? That was great great context, Neve. Thanks for that. But but for for Tinzara and I too, like what would be your message to kind of politicians in Ireland to address the situation, to be a voice of solidarity in the, in the international community that actually has an impact? Um, Tinzara, if you want to address or answer that first. It, like uh, my message is like uh, I like if they see what actually is happening there, and uh, please help. And I, I please help to save Myanmar, Myanmar people. And uh, it's not just with a statement. People are asking help to you and, and the everyone. And we already uh, we request the the uh, R2P to you know to do something because people are an aunt. And, and they are killed every day. So our request is just not, you know, not like the, not, not just the statements to take a serious action. Do you want me? Yes, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yes, to say more like, uh, more or less like, as, as I said, um, European Union, EU is a very strong, um, you know, um, nation uh, and Ireland is, is one of them. And um, this is not a time to, just um, issue statements. This is a time for EU, UN, the international community to take action against the terrible military regime who has been committing human crisis for years and years and years. Recently, the Muslim minority were killed and no action were taken. And this is a time that they do that. And they have, the military has a, a record of doing that for 35 or 40 years and that it's not acceptable that they get away with it no immunity and um like as i said um it is terrible to see women be dragged away from their home children were left crying in, in the dark and um, imagine if that happened in europe do we look do we stand up and look at that we would not we would take action so why do we let this happen in Burma? This is a time international speak with, with one voice. Neve, you might tell us what we can do as individuals in to our listeners who are listening, what they can do or what we can do. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think first, I mean, at a minimum level, I think, you know, creating awareness and, and helping people to understand the severity of this, you know, I think it too makes a very strong point there. You know, if this were happening in, in any Western country, we would look very differently on the situation. Um, it would certainly be gathering much more attention and visibility. So I think awareness is the first thing. Um, I think, you know, sanctions, advocating for sanctions is, is absolutely critical. I think if people want to be in any way involved or supporting what's happening on the ground, there's really good links. Um, Twitter is hashtagging I support Myanmar. Um, opportunities to really get behind what's happening on the ground there is, is what I would say. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us today and uh, hopefully we'll bring some awareness to this issue to to our listeners um, and we'll put some uh, good links for, for other information in our in our show notes. So I really appreciate um, the time that you guys have taken out. I know that it's a very difficult time and, um, you know, just it's not enough to hope that things get better, that, that people need to take action for things to get better. So we're sending you solidarity and um, we'll hopefully check back in with you soon. Thanks for your time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much for, Thank you are the first Thanks. who um, to get involved with us. Thank you. So Andrea, what is getting in the sea this week? Uh, we've touched on it a bit already, but... Uh, with all the discourses going on around violence against women, um, the the thing that's most frustrating is the warnings that are like being given to women: don't go out alone. Um, and you just it just feels very unfair, is one word, but also very lackluster. And also, why? are women being encouraged to change their actions and their behavior when they are not the ones at fault? And I suppose not all men have started trending men. It's like, yeah, Grant, it isn't all men, but it is all women who have stories, who have things that there's only so much women can do. So I think the narrative of like asking women to mind yourself, be careful is that needs to get in the sea because that we can't change anymore. Like we, we're, we're, it's people are being, people are telling their stories of being attacked on main roads at like 9am, 1, 1pm 1 being bundled into cars or whatever. It's like, like you can wear bright clothes. You can stay on the phone with someone. You can have keys in your hand. You can do all the things you're being told to do, but it's not enough that the onus has to lie outside of us. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that I, what I would really like, um, blokes like including all of my male friends to do is actually take this week to talk to a male friend a male family member and as a man ask that friend or family member or colleague or whatever what can we do so that women don't encounter this violence or threat and beginning to think about taking responsibility. Um, I appreciate that uh, not every man engages in, in, in violence or in assault or in catcalling or groping or things like that. I appreciate that. I know that to be true. As you say, Andrea, I also know that every single woman that I know, including myself, has experienced 
physical assault, sexual assault, street harassment, uh, street violence, online uh, misogynistic harassment, all that kind of stuff, if not all of those things. So if you are a guy who's like shocked that this is the female experience, or if you think, well, I've never done any of those things, instead of countering what is the experience of women, please, please, please talk to the man that you know and go, if half of the population is feeling like this, what can we do so that women don't experience this? It's a, it's a pretty simple ask. And uh, I honestly just, I, I'm so, I think that was the thing around International Women's Day as well. Like I'm, I'm just so fucking done with this experience and with this discourse um I didn't think that when I was like 38 that I would be having the same conversations about this that I was having when I was 28 that I was having when I was 18 and the solution does not lie with street lighting or self-defense classes or hashtags that's not that's not the fucking solution here people (laughs) so uh I I have never understood why every woman I know has experienced uh, harassment, violence, assault, you know, gendered attacks, whatever. Yet, I've never heard any man I know tell me about a guy they know who does the same thing or their actions. So it's not like a 1% thing of marauding men doing this. It's an issue that concentrates resentment, power, violence and intimidation within a cohort of people because of patriarchy, which also harms men. So if you're feeling the pain and the anguish and the frustration of women as a man, please, please, Talk to your pal and go, isn't this fucked up that this is how women feel? I wonder what I can do. Because if power structures really lie in men's hands, please fucking take that power and do something with it. That's what I would say. And now it's bananas. Perfect. Feels very, very very, uh, comfortable segueing into a a lighter moment there. Uh, so it's bananas. <laughs> well, can I also say, like, I also want to hear from men stories about male violence. Like, I don't know what it was like to be to sit in a in a room or on a bus or, you know, around a bar table and with with all men and have them say, you know, fucking gross things about women or or recount stories of like sexual encounters that are like, uh, what? Sorry. And like, I don't know what it must feel like to be a guy who is so intimidated and pressured and grossed out by that. And because of the dynamic of male fuckery, power, weirdness, not being able to say anything about that. I like, and I don't know what it's like, what is the damage of getting the shit kicked out of you outside a club just because you're a lad and some other lad boxes you or getting beaten up on a football pitch or in the playground or something? That shit is fucked up. 
Like men suffer male violence so much. And I want like, how does it feel for guys who have suffered physical or sexual violence also at the hands of men to see their mates not all menning all the time? <laughs> like that like that is fucked up. Like you're not being a strong, you know, strong lad for denying this very obvious ex- universal actually experience. And I want men to start talking about what that feels like for them too, because the only way to affect change in society is to find the common ground that we, we can all work from. Because the issue, there is obviously huge issues with female violence and female bullying against men and against women as well. That goes without saying, and it's fucking rotten and nobody's denying that. But there is a broader issue that we all suffer from and we all have to deal with these bullies who are traumatized in society unleashing their trauma on other people. Just fucking stop and start talking about it. Like, and, and, and like, you know, I, I want to hear those stories from men as well, because I think that as sad as it is, the only way we're going to change this is if men start to see male violence as a problem that impacts them. That's the solidarity piece again and again. Like, you, that's the only way you fucking get anywhere. When somebody says, oh, that issue doesn't really impact me. Oh, but I want a better society, so I'm going to vote for repeal or marriage equality or whatever. Like, men have been traumatized by the weird fucking banana town sexual repression and stupid roles that our society and loads of societies have pushed them into. And I know loads of men are unhappy with that, but like we need to start hearing it. Like, so use your, use your voice because women are, are we're hoarse from shouting about this shit. And, and I want like men and women and people of all gender identities to just go stop, like stop, you know, this fucking domestic violence shit during the pandemic is the grimmest thing ever. People trapped in their homes with abusers. We need to end abuse and bullying, a lot of which, very unfortunately, is male because of patriarchy. So we need to fucking just stop all that shit. Like, we could be living in a really happy, safe, pleasurable way. And you know, the things that are taken away from people that can't walk alone and like they can't go for a run in a park or they can't do this, that and the other. Like, like, they're so stupid. And the same people who are like, oh, fucking, you know, get away from me, big government or nanny state or freedom of speech and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's the freedom that's taken away from everyone all the time. The freedom to fucking move around and live in the world safely. Like, get on that freedom, please. And I love you all. I just love everyone and I want everything to be okay. Uh, wow, <laughs> really unleashed the Kraken there. Um, okay, what is actually bananas though, apart from uh, me clearly today? No, uh, I feel like it doesn't really deserve going on about now. I think we can leave the get in the sea, but Leo making an issue of religion in the year of our Lord 2021, uh, is absolutely bananas. His like, he's literally what was the other thing he did? He was. He's literally obsessed with Sinn Féin. It's like, stop it, Leo, and uh, stop saying wrong things and stop just, like, accusing people of things when you're actually the one doing it. Like, just, no, 
stuff. Yeah, I mean, counting, trying to trying to count Protestants in a political party, uh, and then getting the number wrong. Um, all and of who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Like, and it's so crazy that like. Clearly, Finnegal in whatever '90s fever dream version of the Irish electorate they're living in think that people vote for Sinn Fein because of sectarianism or something. And it's like maybe if you spent less time trying to get things wrong about another political party and more time engaging with the society whose electorate, for the most part, is pissed off with you and is then turning to someone else. Maybe if you actually addressed the issues underneath that you wouldn't have to go around being like, and then they did this, and then they did that. It's like, they don't even have any Protestants. <laughs> Come on. Like, even saying that is so stupid, and then doubly stupid getting it wrong. Yeah, bananas. Okay. Anyway, let's finally move on to something that's delicious. It's time for our fave bits. Andre, you have a, a chock full list. Chock full. I'm really leaning in, uh, thanks Sandberg, uh, to <laughs> uh, Happy Women's Day to you. I am leaning in to finding good things at the moment. And first on my list is Eating with the Enemy. I'm obsessed with it. I think it's such good TV. Um, I don't know if you've watched or heard about it, but it's basically putting opposite people together to share a meal. And when I saw it first being advertised, I was like, that is the worst thing that could possibly be done. Like you're literally setting fires all over the place. But it is so nice to see people find their communal interests and where they find common ground. And um, it really just illustrates the importance of in real life conversations and how all our differences can are being sh- having their load shot all over the place because we're literally communicating in 140 characters even though it's probably longer now 320 whatever but the simple act of people having to face each other and work their differences of opinions out is just it's like poetry in motion is that a, would that be a bit much <laughs> I go, just, go I, with it I just really really enjoy it and not even enjoy it it's really calming to see empathy come alive on screen my second fave bit. Oh my God. Hold tight, people. Get ready. Imagine the excitement in my mind. There's a dynasty 40th anniversary celebration. Um, yes, it's true. Joan Collins, Dame Joan Collins, Heather Locklear, Linda Evans, and Stephanie Beecham, and loads of other people are going to be together on a Zoom. Can you cope? Like, I'm like, my mind is blown that this is real life. Obviously, I'm going to get dressed up for it, but it's uh, to raise money for uh, research into long COVID. So it has a reason as well. But like, the glamour of that. Uh, speaking of glamour, the glamour of Vulva, Project Sheila is an art project that's running at the moment that it's a second year. And this is actually an, an activation for International Women's Day that I can get behind. It's uh, they have uh, Sheila Nagig's uh, art pieces that are being placed in. Uh, around Ireland in places where um, that to raise awareness of women's issues. The one that they did for Wednesday was at Pornhub's uh, offices um, to highlight the issues with the porn that was being uploaded and uh, uh, that didn't have uh, consent, blah, 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 blah. But it's a really lovely project. They also have jumpers with Sheila McGiggs on it. Highly recommend checking them out on Instagram. Uh, 
Also, the 8th, uh, the film is opening Human Rights Watch in London on the 18th of March um, with a Q&A, live Q&A after the film. But it's also playing an Athena Festival in New York, which is a festival that celebrates the power of women. Uh, it's playing in SIF Festival in, the, in Washington, um, Lux Film Festival, and then it's coming out in cinemas in UK and Ireland in May. Um, so that is all gorge. Also, another film, The Life and Death of Yosef and Zilli, was one of uh, a short film I happened to come across on the Dublin International Film Festival. And it's such a lovely film that I really enjoyed. And it, it deals with uh, a couple that it, who have had a long life together and they decide that they can't go on without the other. So they decide to pick a date when they're both going to die. And their son uh, films this journey and like interspersed it with their like story of their lives. Uh, and yeah, it, obviously it deals with um, bigger issues, but it, it's a really heartwarming film. And uh, even, yeah, I would highly recommend. And then finally, uh, there's a heart outside Gormley's, um, like this beautiful, I think it's like resin, um, that's all held together with like gold or brass paper clips. And it's so beautiful. Um, and I keep passing it and looking at it and it kind of feels very relevant to our time of like our hearts broken and being held together and just getting through and what that means and everything. So I looked it up and it's an exhibition by Patrick O'Reilly um, called Kintsugi, which is the golden repair, the Japanese art of putting broken objects back together by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer, dusted or mixed with gold, silver or platinum. And he said that Kintsugi, Kintsugi is built on the idea that embracing flaws and imperfections we can create a more beautiful piece of art likewise we as people can hide or avoid difficult experiences and suffer or we can embrace them and become stronger and even more beautiful with our mended breaks and imperfections um, and similarly I feel hopeful that we can come back stronger in 2021 after such a difficult 2020 and maybe some of what we learned during this trying time will help us in the future. Mm. Kintsugi, of course, underpinned by the Japanese aesthetic philosophy of wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi is a, um, it's an aesthetic principle around imperfections and uh, impermanence and, and transience. And that. The joy of the cherry blossom, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Hanami would be the um, watching cherry, uh, the cherry blossoms. But yes, wabi-sabi, I suppose, aesthetic kind of principle that underpins that and um, that, you know, imperfections are beautiful. And I think it's kind of comes probably more out of like the Buddhist uh, concept. Um, what is it? Mujo? Uh, impermanence? Transient? Something like that? There's also, also another fake bit. God, I'm flat out with them. Uh, just where you say about imperfections there's this artist called Michaela Stark and she does this kind she has just released a film called Second Skin um, and it's about the imperfections of the human body and and highlighting them as a celebration rather than an imperfection so yeah love that very on theme my favourite bit, bits? bits are all film related. Um, I was bad into Diff there. I watched the documentary on Alvar Alto, the Finnish architect, um, which is very good. Um, playback, uh, the, 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 the Irish hip hop videos. I did a Q&A for that. Um, I watched Underplayed, which um, funnily enough used some of the same archive footage from that other uh, documentary, Sisters with Transistors, which is great. 
Um, I'm going, I have the, the dissident, which won the award that you were a judge on. It did. It's so good. And I also have The Reason I Jump and A Cast of My Home. And ooh, Big versus Small, which is about um, a, a big wave surfer. One of my favorite things uh, is watching Next surf Do you surf remember the time I when I used to be a surfer? No, I, no, I no, <laughs> no. I'm not a surfer, but I do enjoy watching uh, films on big wave surfing. Uh, yes. Um, my other fave bits are, there's a couple of music docs I watched uh, at the weekend that I really liked. Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell is on Netflix, um, which is really interesting because it's about Notorious B.I.G., obviously, but um, kind of about before he got famous, more about the person. Now, unfortunately, you do have to deal with um, Puffy in it, who I just I'm not can't really cope with. But um, uh, it, it's a really interesting insight into li- the literal place where he came from, like Fulton Street, when he was you know, there doing his bits, uh, let's say, and just those blocks surrounding that. Um, it, it, it's very interesting uh, in terms of like the amount of talent that came out of that area and stuff like that. And also just reminds me of what a fucking amazing uh, rapper he was. Um, and someone who I basically don't really have any interest in as a person or for their music. But since I've watched this documentary, I've just been getting more into her. It's just not my my thing normally, but now I'm totally on board. Uh, the Billie Eilish doc, The World's a Little Blurry, is an amazing music doc. It is such an interesting portrait of a family trying to navigate uh, fame, and at, at you know for a teenager, you know they're the 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 youngest kid, and her brother produce her music, and the pet, like her mom in particular goes on tour with her and stuff like that and it's just she's so giant and like it's it's just fascinating and all of the family footage is brilliant and it's a really really great watch and my book of the week Andrea is My Week Without Gerard which is on Morbid Books it is an absolutely hilarious uh, (laughs) I don't even know like caper detective type mystery thing Um, very funny writing and if you're kind of bored with like stuff that's very like kind of draining and and things like that um this is definitely one for you i'm going to read you the blurb of it because uh it, it kind of says it all in search of france's superstar philosopher who has mysteriously vanished lester langway a young bedraggled freelance reporter for the failing london style bible down and out magazine is sent to paris to solve a hallucinogenic detective mystery involving demonic kantian philosophy identity politics the history of surrealism secret societies and mind control both a scathing satire and a sincere romance my Week Without Gerard is so squarely at odds with the culture mercilessly lampoons, it's little surprise the author writes under a pseudonym. Uh, so highly recommend that. You can get that from morbidbooks.net. I love your little like, this is a light little breezy one. I'm like, yeah, Jackie Collins. You're like, yeah, this satire about oh. No, it's very funny. Very, very fucking funny. Like it is, it is hilarious. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan of Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. What is the tuna chicken roll of the week? Oh my God. This song came back into my life when I was driving and I was so delighted to have it back that I've had it on repeat for a week and I can't get enough of it. It is George Michael Amazing. 
Yep. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. This has been United Ireland. And that was Myanmar. Say should